Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. During her heyday from the late 60s until the mid-90s, Anne McCaffrey, who died in 2011 at the age of 85, was one of the most popular and successful writers in the science fiction field. Her most famous series of novels, The Dragon Riders of Pern, put her on the map, and her novel The White Dragon was one of the first science fiction books from within the genre to land on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list. But her output over her career also included several other series of novels, The Crystal Series, The Brain and Brawn Ship Series, The Dinosaur Planet Series, The Talent Series, the Tower and the Hive series, the Poseidon series, and others written in collaboration with other writers, including several late Dragon Rider novels written with her son, Todd McCaffrey. As with other well-known writers of the era, her popularity has fallen over the years because her books were never adapted for television or film, though Dragon Riders did become a video game. On June 29, 1992, my late partner on Probabilities, Richard A. Lupoff, and I sat down with Anne McCaffrey to discuss her career, as well as her two most recent books at the time, The Rowan and Damia, both of which had been published in the previous two years. You consider yourself a science fiction writer. In fact, I believe you're quite emphatic about yes, that. Yes, I am. But your books, in particular the Dragon books, are very, very popular with fans and collectors of fantasy. Why do you think that is, and how do you respond to it? Well, dragons have, until I got a hold of them, been more or less creatures of fantasy, but I made them, well, um, Bob Heinlein did too. He had them breathing methane gas, which gave them fire-breathing capacity. But he only mentions them briefly in Glory Road. But I had a whole culture based on the need of friendly dragons, user-friendly dragons, which I said, even early on, had been biogenetically created from indigenous sources, and that makes them science fiction. Had you intended after the two trilogies to continue writing them? I did and I didn't. I had done six quite successful novels. I was quite ready to leave it there, but... My son Todd kept needling me. He said, Mother, you haven't solved the problem. And also, Owen Locke and Shelley Shapiro, who became my editors after Jody Lynn Delray's death, I still hadn't solved the problem that I set out to solve in the first book. So what are you going to do about this, Anne? Well, any real reader of science fiction will quickly realize I had written myself into a corner by the end of White Dragon. So I had to set the groundwork for the final denouement and the solution. That took three books. Oh, so that would be Dragon's Dawn, Renegades of Pern, and All the Wares of Pern. Yeah, they're the, the final trilogy. And is that it for uh, the dragons? No, there's going to be another book. I don't know what we're going to call it. They keep liking Pern in the uh, title, but actually 
My young friend is dealing with the, the dolphins of Pern. There are three short stories. I shall be going on with not a mainline book because I've solved the main problem, but there will be other, if you'll excuse me, threads that I have to tie up. And then there will be an anthology uh, which will include the, sh the girl who heard dragons. You read the back end of that in uh, Renegades of Pern. Uh, I've been looking over your list of publications and publishers. In fact, I, re I remember when your very first novel, Rescue, appeared. I, I grabbed it up, that little <laughs> Valentine book. I was doing some research at the time and ran home with it and, and read this book. I said, gee, who is this Anne McCaffrey? Um, but I noticed over the years, among the many editors you've worked with, was some work you did with, uh, with a fellow named Roger Elwood, who breezed through the science fiction field some years yeah, ago. Yeah, the mad anthologist. Well, his name is, is largely forgotten by today's readers. Mm -hmm. But those of us who've been around a bit longer all, all carry strong recollections of him. What was your experience like? I never actually met him until long after he'd stopped his anthologizing. I was in Ireland, in fact. And he kept after me through my agent, Virginia Kidd, to write stories based on this and that theme. And I was broke in those days. Uh, it was pancake time. Like, Mother, wouldn't it be nice to have pancakes because we wanted them? Once in a while, we still go out to IHOP and get some. He did a lot of children books. I did A Proper Santa Claus for him. He changed the ending, but I put it back and get off the unicorn to the proper ending. I did Finder's Keeper. I tried to do a story with Menely in it, and it would not write for Roger. Instead, I gave him The Smallest Dragon Boy, which, to my complete surprise, has become one of the most reprinted stories I've written. And it has ended up in textbooks. And I ran into some kids at a signing in, at Christmas time, and they came up and said, We had to read your story. Smallest Dragon Boy? Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I sicked them on my kid brother, Kevin, who was the, the, sort of the model for the hero in the story. Uh, he has forgiven me since then. But Well, have you, you've come a very long way from Restoree. You, you have become uh, almost a, a cultural icon of contemporary science fiction writers. How do you deal with it? Do you walk around, you know, looking down your nose at the rest of the world? Would do what? <laughs> you must be bloody choking. Well, seriously, how do you deal with this? It's such a change from, oh, it from this indeed. struggling beginner which <laughs> <Yes>. you were. <laughs> Running around hoping people wouldn't notice I'd slipped in the back door. I do live in Ireland, which keeps me out of the the everyday stream. Not, not, not to mention there are people who don't knock on my door and come in for a cup of tea. Most of them are welcome to stay, and the, the others we have a drill for getting rid of. But when I'm being Anne McCaffrey, the author in the States, I am playing a part, the part that I'm expected to play by the people who want to meet me. I'm unfortunately much the same person at home, <laughs> but I hide behind the Anne McCaffrey big-name author. And so it doesn't affect me at all because when I go home, I'll get a bad review and I'll think, yeah, they were right about that. It wasn't that good, you know. So I keep my head. These books are immensely popular. And I wonder, with regard to science fiction in general and with regard to your own works in particular, 
Uh, you will recall there was a debate years ago before the big establishment critics discovered that science fiction was wonderful, okay? In those days, science fiction people were very defensive about their field and kept saying things like, well, mainstream literature may have better style, but we have all these wonderful ideas. Was that ever valid to start with, and is it valid today? It may well be valid today, but I have always stood straight and tall and said, I write science fiction, and if you care to make something about that, go right ahead, mate. I'm proud of what I write. I write the best I can, and I know I interest a lot of people. So I've never never poor-mouthed myself or the field. But I think the question remains, are the essential criteria of a good science fiction novel the same as the essential criteria of a good mainstream novel or, let's say, a good mystery novel? Yes, because you have to tell a story with an interesting plot with good characterization and some little bits and pieces around the edges that people have not encountered before. If you're a craftsman of any kind, you try to uh, use the best within yourself and within your craft to do it. And science fiction in the early 60s decided to improve the product with Damon Knight and Judy Merrill and Kate Wilhelm with the Milford uh, Science Fiction Writers Association, which I attended quite a few times. In fact, I started one in England called the Milford. We found another Milford. It wasn't hard. And Jim Blish was sort of the head, but he couldn't speak that long. He had cancer of the throat. So rather than have Brian Aldous and uh, John Brenner at, each, Brenner at each other's throat, they chose me as, <laughs> <laughs> as the, the chairperson until they began to do it on typically English. I hope at least some of our readers know who these folks are that you're referring to because, again, those of yeah. us who, who have been in the field for many years know exactly who they were and why you say the things you do. But maybe you should give us a little sketch of these personalities. Well, Jim Blish was a slim man who used to eat his lunch at his table with two martinis and write astounding stories. Uh, the best-known ones, I think, are The Cities in Flight, and A Case of Conscience and his Dr. Mirabilis. And A Case of Conscience is still, I think, one of the classics that everyone should read. He also wrote the uh, novelizations for the original Star Trek. Yes, and he was a much better Star Trek writer than Gene Roddenberry ever deserved. John Brunner is very much your archetypal Oxford Don. Uh, he's extremely erudite. His grammar is superb, but he does have a tendency to look down his nose on the lesser lights, and he has a nose to look down with. However, John and I have long since reached a balance and we're very civil to each other, and in fact, I do enjoy his company. Brian Aldous is the gentleman of all time, and really, he is a very sweet, wonderful person. And he only sells a book when he has finished it. And I think he, he John, uh, and one or two others, would I rather not name right now, because I'm not going to name the right ones, are probably the top stylists in the field of science fiction. Now, you have style in your writings, and you have science fiction elements in your writings, but it seems to me, and I could be, you know, this is one person's observation, that your focus is more on character. Oh, yes, much more, on how people will respond to the challenges they meet and the circumstances into which they find themselves. I had took the loggerheads with one bibliographer who, who said that I um, used the Cinderella theme. 
I no way Cinderella was a wimp, and most of my female characters have been strong, mainly because I was around strong characters most of my life. What I have are survivors, people who are in uh, difficult circumstances who somehow or other manage to overcome them with just plain guts or with guile, one or the other, or good luck always features in, in coming out of a survival situation, but mainly it is surviving. In the mid-1970s, uh, there's an essay that appears in um, in a book. Uh, uh, what's the name of that book? 20th Century Science Fiction okay. Authors. There's, a, there's an essay that appears in 20th Century Science Fiction Authors uh, that you wrote in the mid-70s that says, I am not a feminist, though I believe in strong women. Do you see yourself more as a femi of a feminist now, or has that no. simply not changed? It's not changed a bit. I'm still, you know, <laughs> if you've got the character to do it, you'll do it. A lot of feminism, which I, the, the bra burning stuff, uh, if you're a responsible person, you stand up on your own two feet and say, I didn't make it this way because I couldn't, I didn't have the stuff, it's my responsibility, and uh, you take the lumps with everything else. In one of your earlier books, The Kilton and Net Legacy, you discussed the life of women in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Has that improved? Slightly. That man can't sell the family house out from underneath her without her signature on a paper. In fact, when I sold Dragon Hold recently to move into a new house, I had to prove that my ex-husband had never been in Ireland, had never been in my house. It worked both ways. I couldn't sell it out from underneath him now either. But as he never had, there was no problem. Well, I laughed a lot at the whole thing. <laughs> You've, you've worked outside of science fiction mm -hmm. uh, in romance. Have you done mysteries? Well, sort of uh, romantic mysteries, things that were fairly easily solved, but not uh, of the type that, um, oh, I'm thinking J.B. Fletcher, and I know that's not what I want. <laughs> Agatha Christie, P.D. James. Agatha Christie, uh, Josephine Tay, some of those people know. Well, well no, nonetheless, I wonder how you have felt when you moved out of a field in which you are so thoroughly familiar with uh, all of the all of the landscape and furniture into a new realm. Did you have any particular jolt of, what, what's the term, uh, the shock of the familiar? Did you experience the shock of the unfamiliar when you moved into these other fields? Yes, Richard, I think I did because it's much harder to write in um, contemporary vein because you're not making up the etceteras. When I wrote uh, what they laughingly called here the, the the lady, which I preferred to call the Caradine Touch, it's about a horse family in Ireland. And I did a lot of research on time, on what was going on, what the weather was like, uh, on the horse situation, the international situation, the situation in Ireland. And I had that as a framework that I could use, so I was certain that historically when I put things, they were correct. And I find that much more difficult for me to do. What era was that? Oh, that came out in uh, 86, I think, 87. You've also recently been working uh, a lot with collaborations. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth Moon, there are two books. Jody Lynn Nye, there's two books. And Margaret Ball, I have listed one book. Mm -hmm. Are these collaborations put together the same way? Uh, and what way is that, or are they different? Is uh, each one different? They were actually packaged by Bill Fawcett Associates, 
And he came to me and he said, look, the mid-list riders are really getting in the crunch. And I figured out an idea. If we pair you with some of the good mid-list riders, perhaps they will get the publicity and the notice uh, that they deserve. So what I did was to sit down and write a, a general outline, which my collaborator could then change if they had a, a brilliant inspiration. And Elizabeth had a marvelous one in Generation Warriors of uh, a heavy... The Heavy Worlders opera, and it was absolutely beautiful. So we had both had input uh, once we did the, the skeleton, and that worked very well. In fact, there's a fifth one coming out with the Mercedes Lackey that I'm extremely excited about. I think she's a marvelous new young writer. So these are these are uh, actual collaborations in terms of the 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 writing itself, not just the outline as well. Yeah, that's right. And I did an in-house. Uh, collaboration with Elizabeth Ann Scarborough. Uh, she was a Nebula winner for the Very Fine Healers War. And she had come over to Beg House Room with me. She wanted to do some research in Irish uh, folk music and Scotch folk music. And I said, Yeah, come on, I got this new house, and come on over and stay with me for a while. So she did. And in the evenings, when we both finished the work day, as it were, we'd sit around and we were tossing things back and forth. And I said, what we really should do is something using our own experiences. She, of course, had lived in Alaska and had been in Vietnam. And I've been in Ireland, which is slightly alien. <laughs> it really is at times. Um, so we decided to do a book together. And we figured out who the main characters were. And I said, well, I want to start off with Yanaba. I like her. So I started off the first chapter and a half. And then I, I was working on uh, Crystalline at the time. And I had a real hot idea to go on in that book. It's the third Kilachandra. So I passed the disc over to her, and she took off and did the next chapter and a half or something. And then we'd sort of work along uh, and, and do the framework based on the original idea. And that developed the plot and uh, the planet. Well, now that you've done all of these books in collaboration, how do you feel about working in collaboration as, a, as opposed to working by yourself? So long as I get my way, I don't mind at all. <laughs> no, actually, I'm quite willing to listen to what any other writer wants to say, and we can talk it over and find out whether it, it will work. Do you find it easier, harder? Most of the time, it's easier because you've got two minds to work out details. And for instance, Elizabeth Moon is a Marine captain. I had a father who was in the army, but she knew the the um, military or the naval aspects that helped build Sassanac as a character and later Generation Warriors. Margaret Ball is very interested in uh, space drive. She figured out the singularity drive uh, and explained it to me, which she had to, because I didn't know what she was talking about. Do you understand it? Not really, but it works. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least in the books it does. And each of us have had something to give the other. And that's when a partnership or a collaboration works. At one point you had said that The Ship Who Sang was your favorite story among what you had written. Is that still true? Oh, yeah, I think so. If you were to be remembered for anything, would that would that be what you would want? Uh, for ship, yes, I would like to be remembered. Uh, I'll probably be the dragon lady till the day I die, but I'm not, I'm not unproud of them either. You've been involved with science fiction since the late 1950s, mm -hmm. and it seems to me, having been involved with it pretty much the same 
uh, time period that you have, it's undergone an awful lot of changes. I wonder how you feel about those changes and whether you feel that they're they're just fashion, people are wearing green hats today and they'll wear blue hats tomorrow, or whether you think this is really a change at the heart and core of science fiction. I'm not a very good one to ask that sort of a question, although I think I can answer it this time. We all understand that from the time Star Trek started and the Star Wars and E.T., that we had a much broader reading base. That reading base has wants more of the same stories that they loved either on the screen or the tube. We're getting two and three generations. I've had grandmothers come up and say that they had introduced their sons and book, daughters to my books, and now they were reading to their grandchildren. Well, <laughs> that's pretty good, thank you. But for a long while there in the 80s, I think people read science fiction because we were talking of futures, and people were very worried that they might not have one. Once they realized just how wide open the field is to imagination, to all kinds of unthought of things that are within the, the range of po probability, not possibility, maybe both. I think they want to come back to it again and will stay with it because it does give you some place to escape to. And it's marvelous fun. And certainly in many cases now, the writing is far above what it used to be in the good old pulp days. And we the writers of science fiction, have done that. We've improved the product to the point where it is uh, remarkably saleable. So you think we're kind of in a golden age now? Well, Damon Knight used to say it went in 12-year cycles. I don't know where he got that one from, but for a while it was right. As long as we can keep thinking up new things to interest the human mind, I don't see why we can't go on. Anne McCaffrey, you start this new series, which is about people with psychic powers able to use their psychic powers for space travel. What brought you to that idea? Well, actually, the Rowan was a story I did in 1958. There not being sufficient romance in the world, Berkeley Putnam asked me, could I put it back in? And suggested that I expand the story, A Lady in the Tower, into the Rowan, which is what I did. And as I'd done a second story in 1967 for fantasy and science fiction called A Meeting of Minds, in which I deal with the Rowan's daughter, Damia, I've sort of done them both, only it looks like they're going to work into a four-book series. It would appear that the Damia does not exactly end at an ending. It seems like no. there's going to be more material more. involving the three alien races. Mm-hmm. The Rowan, when you say that you started it in 1958, you wrote the first story, at that point you had just come out of doing some work with John W. Campbell. You wrote for him for uh Oh, no, Astounding. no, the, the Rowan is, predates Campbell a long ways. It predates Campbell. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was 58. I didn't get to know John Campbell until 1965, 66. Because it seems to tie in in terms of his interest in uh, psychic powers. They were psychic powers all on my own uh, before I even knew that John would permit such things in analog. It seems that psychic powers seems to cover a number of your works, uh, Crystal Singer certainly, as well as the mm. psychic relation with uh, the Dragon books. No, not, not Crystal Singer. I mean, all she has is perfect pitch. 
and a bad temper. But that's beside the point. <laughs> I, yes, I do use a lot of the psychic. I use them in the Pegasus series and, of course, in the Damien and Rowan. In fact, to ride Pegasus and Pegasus in flight were supposed to be sort of the beginning of this whole thing, the end of which is the Rowan, Damien, Damien's children. But I couldn't put it all in the one book, so it's developed into four or five or six or I don't know. You know, you grab something and you, you see the ramifications and you get involved in the, in the people. Actually, I get very interested in the people and I continue with them. Is there a way uh, f to bring all of them into one, one universe? Bring Not very likely. I mean, each universe has its own peculiarities and its own fortes, and I'm not about to try to rationalize them all. I don't think I could. Because it seems like a number of authors have made the attempt. Asimov, of course, by bringing his robot and foundation series into one. Well, that was a good doctor, and he's a hell of a much better writer than I am. <laughs> In your new book, Damien, uh, you you do have these uh, psi powers in which people move spaceships and cargoes by pure mental effort. With a little help from generators. Okay. I'd like you to talk about this topic because there is also hardware-type space travel involved as well, spaceships with, with space drives as mm -hmm. we've um, – going back to, to uh, Frank R. Paul-type right. nuts and bolts mm -hmm. and rivets sticking out all over the place. It seems to me that that on some sort of conceptual or even philosophical level, there is a, um, a a conflict between those two concepts. How do you make them work together? By not going into a great deal of detail, of course. My people, the Rowan from Callisto Station on the moon, can send people in the general direction they want to go. But they'll have to go under power to do the fine driving and, and, and landing in most cases, unless they are near enough to one of the big towers to be dropped neatly into a cradle. And the, the, uh, these, these people are also able to transport themselves. What are they, in caskets? No, 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 no. They're in sort of a capsule. I mean, there is no air in space, and it's very, very cold. So you'd need some kind of, a, of an atmosphere and uh, um, ambience to travel in. So why they couldn't, you know, pop in and out of places on um, uh, Earth or some of the other planets, they certainly do use protection to go from one planet to another. Now you have, in the Rowing, you have uh, the character Jeff transporting himself from one star system to another. Actually, he doesn't. He uses a capsule, too. It seems that you're drawing in your book on a number of sci common science fiction themes, certainly sci and psionics mm -hmm. is uh, something that appears in everything uh, down the line through the Campbell's ideas as well as Marion Zimmer Bradley. Uh, in uh, both books, you have a group, The Hive, The Beatles, who reminded me somewhat uh, of Orson Scott Card's Queen of the Hive in, her, in his uh, Speaker for the Dead series. Are you familiar with that? I haven't read Speaker for the, the Dead. Dead. I did read Endgame, which I thought was brilliant. No, I rather thought the hive, well, you can use the same sort of things. It's it's explicative of a lot of things, actually. My hive people, I discover, look more like praying mantas in beautiful shades. 
But they they live with a hive and a queen, and they mm-hmm. have a kind of group. They mind. have that sort of an asi- uh, yeah society, a group society. Uh, actually, the uh, characters in Alien, the aliens in Alien, have that aspect as well with a queen. Yes, but I'm not as gory. <laughs> Who is? <laughs> you also have a character. You also have a, a strange race, the Sodan or Sodan in Damia, and you don't go into much detail about who or what they or it is. Well, it happened to be running the spaceship, which was going across the great void to discover other people, probably with mayhem in mind. I don't go into any description because he was just the brain of the person. He does say that once he walked and breathed air and felt sun, but that's as much as you ever know about him. Because he seems different from most of the uh, usual aliens that you encounter. Well, I was very young then still, and I wasn't... I hadn't met uh, Dr. Jack Cohen, who taught me how to put proper aliens together. Over the past, oh, 30 years that you've been writing science fiction... How many books? Forty. Do you have any idea how many alien races you have created? I taught it up once, but I couldn't give you the figure offhand. A dozen or so. Uh, the question is, do you really believe that there are alien races? Yeah. Why do you think that? Well, on the million and a half planets that Carl Sagan says have the same sort of uh, temperature and carbon-based life forms that we have here on Earth, uh, something else is going to come out of the sludge. They won't look like us, which I learned from Dr. Jack Cohen. But the fact that they could be sentient and intelligent enough to want to see what else is around at some later date is quite likely. Why have we never met them? Or have we? We may have. I don't know. Uh, The reason I ask this is that Werner Vinge was in the studio recently, and and he was talking about the same subject, uh, the mathematics of the size of the universe, Mm -hmm. the number of planets that we can calculate probably resemble our own and so forth. And Rich, do you recall, I I think that Werner wound up being pretty noncommittal by the time he got to the end of it. Oh, he was noncommittal, but... But his assumption was that by the time a race achieves spaceflight, they'll also have achieved some kind of transcendence. So they could be around, and we wouldn't necessarily know they are. <laughs> That's possible, but I'd rather do it in good old corpus. <laughs> Makes for better stories. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think so. Do you connect these speculations or computations of probability regarding the real universe with your works of fiction, or, or is just fiction completely separated from these matters? Well, I'm as bound by what we discover in science as anybody else, and sometimes the stories do reflect what I have just recently read. Uh, More often they reflect uh, social events, even wars that happen to be happening along when I'm writing the book. I once had to sit down and figure out how many different elements had gone into, uh, for instance, uh, Pegasus in Flight, and we had the uh, Cleveland child abuse scandal. We had uh, Bush meeting with uh, Gorbachev, and what I liked what came into that was all his little uh, translators standing right behind the, the big men's arms uh, and going... The, the little bald guy with the mustache. Yeah, I miss whoever. him. Yeah. I miss him. Yeltsin doesn't <laughs> have an interesting guy like that. No, and I was thinking, gee, wouldn't it be easier if someone was 
a linguist in the frontal part of the mind and could pick up and respond perfectly in the language, not just being a child, but, but it would have a, a um, psionic ability. And that's where I get my, my little heroine. Oh, there were a couple of other things that were going on that were really annoying the hell out of me. So I put them in, in, in different guises, but they're there. I have a whole list of it because somebody just asked me, Ms. McCaffrey, how much does uh, uh, local history and newspapers have to do with your books? And uh, so I wrote it down so I'd remember. Are you using the dragon books as a commentary or is that pure science fiction? That's pure science fiction. People dealing, surviving under their own merits at a low level of um, technology, which was one of the premises originally. And what will happen when they suddenly don't need it anymore? What about um, the new books, uh, The Rowan and Damia? Is there anything there, uh, if not from now, from 1958? <laughs> In 1958, when I was trying to bust into science fiction, uh, I realized there were no really decent love things. And I read a marvelous series of books. There were two or three of them, uh, no, short stories, I think in fantasy and science fiction, about um, telepaths on Mars. I don't know who wrote them, but they the, the stories themselves really grabbed me. And that's what I wanted to emulate in my fashion. And having felt myself as a child very much a loner, Maybe because I was such a brat, no one would play to me with me. I earned it. I think I put a lot of the, of the of me in the Rowan at that stage. How much of the Rowan and Damia were rewritten uh, currently, recently? Very little. I updated certain of the language for the Rowan. My daughter told me that she had to have had a love affair before she goes into the tower. So I contrived that very nicely, I thought. Tyrion made a very nice boyfriend first time and except for cleaning up the language and bringing it up to to date as it were i didn't change much uh likewise with uh, uh damia and the meeting of minds although i made her less of a of a, an idiot well you also have a fairly explicit sex scene mm -hmm. and that was not in 1958 oh yes that was in oh in um in damia and Damia, yeah, that was in. Oh, it was. ends on the line. It, my, uh, so Dan may have loved you in his fashion, says Afra, but mine will be much more satisfying to you than a meeting of minds. Anne McCaffrey, you have two books in the Rowan and Damia series, both written 34 years ago. <laughs> uh, is the third volume going to be new? Oh, the third volume is completely new. Um, and I just turned it into Sue Allison at Berkeley Putnam. And I also told her, Sue, I haven't been able to finish this in this volume. I think there will be a fourth. And the amusing thing about this is that I mentioned the aliens only briefly in the first story, and I have now developed them into a universal menace. And this is the hive. This is the hive. And what is the name of this book? Damia's Children is the third book in the series. And the fourth, does it have a name yet? No. Not I haven't yet. figured that one out. I haven't started writing it yet. And the next dragon book, is that written? That has a name. Uh, Raidus and the Dolphins. And uh, this new book that you were talking about, 
raving about a moment ago with Elizabeth Ann Scarborough. What's the story on that? Ah, uh, that is called The Powers That Be. And that will be out? I haven't got a pub date on it. We did turn it in in the beginning of uh, May. I rather like that one. <laughs> it's got some good stuff in it. For nearly two decades after this interview, Anne McCaffrey continued to write and collaborate. Each of the collaborations mentioned in the interview spawned multiple novels, and while she may have only been planning to write one more Dragon Riders book, The Dolphins of Pern, which was published in 1994, she wrote three more novels in the series and a story collection, and followed these with another four written in collaboration with her son Todd, who also wrote two more in the series under his own name. My co-host for this Probabilities Archive interview was Richard A. Lupoff. This interview was digitized, remastered, and re-edited in November 2020 by Richard Walensky. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.